Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Insurgents, episode 10. Uh, it's Rob Rousseau here. Hey, Rob. And that's Jordan Yule. You just heard Jordan Yule, <laughs> my co-host on the show. Um, how's it going, Jordan? How's it going over there? Hey, it's going great. Uh, I am self-quarantining. Yeah, I'm sitting here on my th- my throne of toilet paper. Oh, nice. You know, I... Uh, I, I ransacked the local Costco. I, I fought an elderly man, wrestled him to the ground and was able to make off with, uh, you know, just filled the whole car full of toilet paper. I left all the canned goods, all that, all the stuff. Yeah. Needed that toilet paper though. Gotta have that. Well, the yeah, that's important an thing. essential. You know that, you know that classic rule we all know the most important mm-hmm. thing in a crisis. What's the, what do you need? Water? No. Food? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, soap? No. Mm, no. Gotta get that toilet paper, baby. And I got a, I got a, I got a whole lot of it. I, this is so funny to me because it's like, th- why? That's I don't understand the thing. <laughs> I feel like it was just like one video, and someone saw like someone else buying a bunch, and they just assumed that everyone would need it. And it was just kind of like this group think, like hive mind reaction. It's so bizarre because it's like that's like you know that type something that you use toilet paper for like some medicinal condition is not a side effect of this <laughs> no yeah and anyway i don't really see what the big deal is uh i think it's a lot of panic over and over nothing because my my main man <laughs> president donald j trump has oh, handled yeah. this beautifully <laughs> over the last couple of weeks clearly you know when you have a master at work it's just you just sit back sometimes and just watch him get to work, and you just get goosebumps, you know, mm-hmm. like the like the the sports greats. You see Michael Jordan in his prime, the flu game, right? That's a good that's a good metaphor right. for right now. You see these people just work absolute prime of their careers, doing what they do best, and you know you just marvel at it. I think he's just he's just knocked this one out of the park. Great stuff from President Trump. Yeah, I I think he he was smart to ignore it for weeks as it was developing mm. in other countries. I mean, you know, some like nerdy other country presidents might uh, try to get things planned out in advance, seeing it coming from halfway across the globe. No, not mm. our guy. No way. He doesn't need <laughs> no, to do that. No. He could do it in the blink of an eye. Well, looking, I'm looking at infection numbers right now. I'm seeing, you know, uh, Italy, very high numbers of infection there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The UK. South Korea, they, quite high numbers of infection. The United States, mm-hmm. pretty low. You know, not yeah. many people. And that's the brilliant strategy of President mm-hmm. Trump. You don't test everybody. You can get those numbers low. That's so right. it's fine. Yeah, I, I think you see a lot of like, uh, it's beta behavior, I like to call it, from other countries. Testing mm. people, yeah. trying to stay yes. on top of it. Yeah, okay, yeah, then you're wasting tests, and then your numbers skyrocket. Wow, now you got a problem on your hands. Crisis averted. You don't test. There's no problem. <laughs> yeah, and uh, obviously the most important thing here is that no one is going on the fake news media to say mean things about President Trump. That's the number one thing uh, that has to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. And, you know, when people when people kind of like... They go on there, they try to politicize incidents like this, and they say, Ooh, ooh, President Trump, he lied about the the tests that were available. Ooh, there's not enough hospital beds for all the cases of infection we're going to see. Just crying, just embarrassing stuff. You know, you hate to see it. Ugh. 
liberal media, fake news. Yeah, I can't, I can't stand I, it. Disgusts me. They just want to make our president look bad. That's their only objective. And what they're trying to do now is have doctors and scientists come on to talk about uh, epidemiology like they're some uh, intellectual experts. But uh, Donald Trump, does he have it? No. And he was with people that had it. So again, case like just your whole worldview yeah. has been disproven. Yeah. You don't get tested. You don't have it. That's the problem. Exactly. There's no test. There's yes. no test telling you have it. That's cool. how science works. It's how medicine works. I know cool, this. Cool medical degree, though, bro. <laughs> yeah. So when, I, when he said make America great again, I didn't realize he was talking about 1919. So, uh, Jordan, coronavirus. Uh, we have not, we're episode 10 of The Insurgents now. We have not mentioned this once uh, throughout the run of the show so far. And I want to like remind people uh, or let people know, our listeners, we're not, we're not doctors. Not... <laughs> well, that's, that is true. Uh, anyone can, that follows me on Twitter or listens to the show can, <laughs> can attest to that. But <laughs> honestly, the main reason I have really not been talking about this um, is because, uh, it's not because I didn't think it was newsworthy or because I don't think it's important or I don't, I, you know, I think people are making a big deal over nothing. It's really because, um, a as soon as I started hearing stories about this, you know, a couple months ago, um, as it was kind of developing in China and then spreading, it was kind of setting off these alarm bells, uh, in my mind that have maybe been there since, uh, from, uh, absorbing a little bit too much apocalyptic fiction <laughs> over the course of my life. And usually the way that I, I process things that I know are like upsetting or scary to me is I just don't think about it. And I, <laughs> I'm hearing mm -hmm. the news stories about this, this spreading disease and it's going everywhere. The lack of preparation. And my brain just goes, well, I'm not going to think about that. And it just kind of like, I, sho I, I shove it down to a place deep inside my, the pit of my stomach. Um, and that's how I deal with things like both in my personal life or, or uh, in, the, in the news world that I just really don't want to think about. I don't want to think about the repercussions of them. And, uh, but obviously uh, kind of unavoidable now, kind of unavoidable that we need to probably talk about this a little bit. Yeah. I mean, they sat on their hands for weeks. They knew this was coming. Um, there's no response. I mean, he like deliberately, like the Trump administration deliberately ignored it and downplayed it. They called it a hoax for a while. And as we saw reported out yesterday and the day before, it's because they saw that as a threat to Trump's electability. They were worried that a spike in, um, uh, you know, infections or, or cases in the United States and then ultimately deaths would, would risk his chances of getting reelected. So they deliberately ignored it and now they're not testing people and it's just like psychotic. Yeah, and this is not it's like a, this is behavior. not like an occupied democrats like meme thing or like something no. something that just made up this is reported out yeah this is like it was in npr it was uh, on fresh air <laughs> nuts Ooh, yeah and you know i guess it's it's pointless sometimes pointing out the hypocrisy of like the maga people and the people that really like this guy but i have to say I do find it so for this guy, you know, Trump is supposed to be like a strong man and he's supposed to be, you know, what the what his fans say about him is always going to take responsibility and he's going to do this. And I have to say, it's so fucking pathetic 
that every time something goes wrong, he, his immediate reaction is just to first lie about it or say it's nothing's going wrong. Or then when it's unavoidable, like right now, um, then he just immediately blames it on the guy that was there five years ago, blames someone else, blames uh, this is Obama's fault. And actually, yeah, all these, these lack of preparation was because of, of weird, bad decisions that Obama made that now I'm fixing. Now we're able to, I cut the red tape, uh, draining the swamp. Now we're able to attack, uh, like attack this problem. And it's like, how do people fucking respect this guy? It's so embarrassing. And I don't want to stand up for Obama. You know, I have my own problems with the Obama administration, but like, it's like, it's, it's, out there for everyone to see the way that Trump, uh, the administration, they actually cut pandemic preparedness out of their budget. Um, and all the ways that this was downplayed, he called it a hoax, uh, how he's completely botched this entire process, uh, leaving the United States completely, totally unable to confront this. And yeah, I just find it so fucking pathetic that people respect this and think this guy is like tough or or that he <laughs> that he's going to cut through this red tape or all this they believe this shit. Yeah, it, the response from the Trump administration and the federal government and the Federal Reserve has largely been focused on businesses. Uh they they directed the Small Business Association to offer um low interest loans to companies. You saw the Fed inject like up to 1.5 trillion to stabilize the market and the debt market and it's just like that's their top priority, and a lot of people were, like, doing the, oh, uh, well, actually, you don't understand, this is not free money, this is just loans. Like, yeah. I don't give a shit about getting into the weeds on what <laughs> what it is, where the money comes from, things like that. It's just, like, no one questioned the urgency or the legitimacy of helping businesses, but Senate and the Senate GOP has said, yeah, yeah well, we might consider it after recess, and then we saw the Democrats cave on a... Uh, uh, paid leave policy in their negotiations and it's just like they're hemming and hawing about uh how to handle the way you help people the way you respond to a health crisis you saw a paltry like uh, amount from the from the trump administration at the onset but also like testing is insufficient you have members of trump's cabinet and, and administration unable to confirm whether or not we have enough respirators for the expected number uh, a number of people who will need them like you're going to see this patchwork healthcare system completely strained to like the nth degree and possibly or probably break because of lack of preparedness a for-profit system that has just rejected the needs of people for decades um and just a, a general ignorance toward this whole issue in the weeks leading up to this when we all knew it was coming um it's pro i don't i don't want to be alarmist and obviously again we're not experts but like this it, it, there's so many other ways that it could have been handled and it's just like they, they somehow found the way to do it the worst possible way and it's making andrew fucking cuomo the governor of new york look more measured yeah. and diligent in his response for the state it's just insane yeah, I think that has been one of the really surreal things, though, just over the last couple of days. Because th this is so weird, I find, because, you know, I think, when did we record on Wednesday? We recorded the last episode. And, you know, I was joking around, like, I felt like my, my, my fight or flight reflex had been triggered. And I, I, I was chalking that up to mostly the election, but I still had this kind of, like, odd feeling. Um, and then, like, immediately after we recorded, like, this has escalated so much. Um, like all hell basically broke loose, starting with um, with the NBA canceling, and then it's just like the snowball of like all these major major public events all of a sudden just shutting down really really quickly. It's been so so surreal. 
Um, but I mm-hmm. think also in that time, what has been also very interesting to see is people just like realizing how American society is just like totally uh, not set up to deal with issues like this. And that when you have a social democracy and you have a strong institutions that can help people in times of need, and in, even on a broader sense, your culture is more geared to like being in a society where we're all living together and we're all kind of helping each other, as opposed to this like very individualistic, atomized, uh, every man for himself, uh, the way that American society has kind of become organized. Um, you and People are realizing like, hey, it seems like seems like we could use things like universal health care and all of a sudden people are kind of waking up to these things like we need to you know start asking about this and these emergency measures but you know there's kind of a larger conversation there uh which is like maybe if we get through all this maybe we should start to re-examine some of these things uh and maybe start to ask questions about the way we've set up our society maybe we should have things like universal health care uh maybe we should uh, you know forgive student debt or like make it easier for people to pay their rent if they're not able to like we don't need to just do that in this time of crisis we should just do that all the time um and it's pretty funny seeing a lot of uh, a lot of folks kind of come around to this this uh conclusion especially as i was mentioning on a previous episode the the libertarian conservative types like friend of the show ben shapiro um (laughs) who, who now is looking for the big government he needs that big government to come in and start making more tests and getting more more tests out there, but you know it doesn't really. Oh, we co- can't do that. That's yeah. socialism. No, that's that's socialism. Can't have that. Can't have that. No. But yeah, you mentioned. Um, I I don't I don't want to be alarmist either. Um, but they're <laughs> kind of choosing my words wisely here. Like, there's the range <laughs> of possibilities for how this could go in America. Uh, it's pretty broad. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. the worst case scenarios when you start gaming those out are almost unfathomably bad. So I guess that's something we're going to have to keep our eye on. And uh, it's it's yeah, it's a bit of a bit of an odd time right now. And this this really did feel like this. This has become the story just in the last day or two. It's been just been weird. Yeah, I mean, one thing in a personal capacity, one thing I'm concerned about is I am sw- I know I am switching healthcare providers at the end of the month. And that process, I know this is probably completely foreign to you. Yes. That process <laughs> is not always a fluid one. <laughs> um yeah, I want to point out you've been flaunting your Canadian privilege around the office. Um <laughs> some of our some of our coworkers have noticed and uh you know, we're taking it up with HR. We don't yeah. appreciate you just bragging about having universal health care in a time like this. Okay, well we'll have a no, sit down about it's, that. Uh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um <laughs> No, yeah, it's 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 obviously I, I I'm lucky in that I have healthcare now and i know i'll have it next month but it's just like sometimes those ends do not meet and i'm just so desperately worried about getting at like the end of the month and then having to you know just deal with that whole fucking convoluted process and just knowing that in the end result some paperwork will get fucked up or not something won't get processed and get stuck with some giant bill and have a, a colossal headache to fight it um and that's something that like really demonstrates the necessity of having universal health care, especially at a time like this. And it is absolutely flabbergasting that that is not at the forefront of the national conversation at, in the middle of a Democratic presidential primary. And one candidate is saying, yes, Medicare for all. And the other is saying, 
We're going to leave 10 million people uninsured. Sorry. And That's and it. the Democratic like, Party establishment has taken every single resource at their disposal to ensure that the first person does not become the presidential candidate <laughs> right. and ensure that the right. the second one who does not believe in these things and specifically said like three days ago that he would veto such a, such a plan uh, if he was the president. Right. Um not so sure the Democratic Party knows what the fuck they're doing sometimes. Sometimes I can't help but feel like they're just, like, kind of flying blind on a lot of this stuff. Huh. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it is it is interesting because it's, it's heightening the contrast of what is at stake here. Ooh. And considering, yeah. so it's a public health crisis, and it's also an economic crisis. And you have one person with decades of credibility of talking about both of these subjects <laughs> and the fundamental flaws inherent to the, the way America kind of confronts these systems uh, versus another candidate who spent his whole career making sure these systems are perpetuated uh, indefinitely. And obviously, uh, right now, it looks like the second person is in the in the kind of lead in this contest. But. As I mentioned last week, or not uh, last week, sorry, as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, hopefully, if this debate is allowed to continue on Sunday, and there's many people in the Democratic Party that are trying to make sure it doesn't continue, uh, oddly, they don't seem to trust the you know, their their nominee, their preferred nominee to speak coherently for two hours and respond to questions and, and do things that presidential candidates should probably be able to do. Um, it will be very interesting if this debate goes ahead and whether Bernie Sanders, I mean, I feel like a lot's riding on this. I, I don't want to say this, like the debate's going to change everything at all, but there's really an opportunity right now for Bernie Sanders to really make abundantly clear like, what, what each person stands for and, and show people in America that like his vision for how the government should work, if that was in place you would be dealing with a much less severe crisis right now. And I hopefully he's going to be able to get that across to people. Yeah. Well, I mean, all of this kind of plays into our, our guest yeah. too. One of our guests. So Ken Klippenstein uh, of the nation. Our, <laughs> lis- our listeners know <laughs> Ken, it, there is a lifetime ban against Ken Klippenstein. Uh, we times yeah, two double. It's a double ban double ban he does have a story in the nation this week about a lot of this stuff and we tried mm-hmm. to find other people to come talk about his story but <laughs> <laughs> it would legitimately be so funny if we had his co-worker to come <laughs> just, on and talk <laughs> i don't know i didn't write this why why am i here to talk just it's okay don't yeah, worry like about a- it. annie yeah. shields just comes on and just like shooting from the hip about yeah. it so we had ahead, to sorry. bite the bullet uh, an extended invitation back to Ken Klippenstein to come on and talk to us about this. Begrudge, begrudgingly. Yeah. But uh, pretty much so the story, I think, focuses on the sort of extraordinary emergency powers that are potentially available to the government in times like this. So it will be, I guess, interesting yeah. to talk to him about that. Um, who else do we have coming on the show? But if, if we're sorry and we will do better. Yeah. And this is just like a temporary yeah. hiatus in in the national interest for public health. And then he's back to. Yeah, take suspended. this with a content warning because, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also have Aida Chavez from The Intercept to talk about her piece in The Washington Post, if you can follow all of that, about. Uh, AOC's pragmatism uh, in Congress and why that might upset people. And, you know, some of the recent AOC news, 
uh, people don't feel like she's being as radical as they thought she was. And, you know, Aida has been covering her and has known her since the onset. Like, Aida profiled her in the primary and one is, was one of the few people who even knew. Yeah. She even knew who she was before she beat uh, Crowley. So uh, to to talk about her, about like her piece and um, uh, and AOC and and all that. So really, really good conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, that definitely a subject that I'm kind of interested in exploring a little bit. Um, it should be fun. And I'll stop because <laughs> I told, I was listening back to the previous episode and you kept trying to kick to the guests, but I was so like energized that I just could and another I thing know. and I'm just ranting. <laughs> I was really losing it. I was really losing it on on uh, on Wednesday, but I'm feeling much well, better. We now. also we also have an interview in like eight minutes that we need to get ready for. So yeah, yeah. Okay, well then let's do it. Let's. Uh, I actually don't know who's going to come on first. Let's uh, let's. We'll be back in one minute with our first guest, and it will be either Ken Klippenstein or Aida Chavez. Stay tuned. <laughs> I never thought I would see the day that none other than uh, Ken Klippenstein would wander back into Insurgents Global Headquarters here. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures, and I understand that um, conditions are such that um, you've exercised your emergency authorities. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> break in need we, of Ken Klippenstein. Break glass yeah. in need of Ken Klippenstein. And that's yeah, our listeners have. are going to be furious. We had to throw a content warning before this to make sure that everyone's like... <laughs> prepared <laughs> prepared emotionally a, for it yeah we we convened an emergency board meeting of yeah. all the uh the insurgents uh llc board members yeah and uh you know it was a it was not a unanimous vote <laughs> a lot of hand wringing but it was it was a majority so i locked it up we didn't have to yeah it was a plurality yeah. yeah there were some calling for your death it was a process <laughs> we have to see through the process see how it goes. see but the reforms that I secured um, as a consequence of my last um, visit made it so that you had to respect the um, the plurality. Well, really, That's we just right. changed the lock so you can't sneak back in again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jordan, by the way, who do I talk to about the, the mini fridge in my office appears to be malfunctioning? Can we can we do something about that? Yeah, I will uh, just submit a help ticket. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I will. Yeah. Okay. So I got to keep my diet soda cold. I understand. It has to be at a very specific temperature for me. <laughs> Ken, why are you here? <laughs> That's yeah, what a very are we doing? Existential here? question. Do you mean on the show? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> um, I, yeah. I want to talk about coronavirus. I uh, had a document leaked to me by um, someone in the Department of Homeland Security uh, that I think details really nicely um, what is known in the national security world. Um, but it's not really known by the general public. Certainly wasn't known um, by me, and I and I, you know, uh, have some proximity to this stuff. <laughs> and so, uh, what ended up happening is after 9/11, George W. Bush, as we all know, issued a number of executive orders, um, sort of culminating in the Patriot Act, um, which gives the executive branch uh, pretty amazing powers in in, in situations deemed uh, national emergencies. Um, that's of course what we have now. Um, today, President Trump just declared national emergency over the coronavirus. And um, what I think Although I got to say, I feel much more comfortable and, and less anxious now that I saw uh, the big boy up there with the, the CEO of Walmart 
to, to give it an update on this. <laughs> and talk about the various websites they've got in the works. I think it's I think this baby's under control. It's like corporate justice league, but it's just like CEO <laughs> for it's so like, sick, man. Oh, yeah. You know the guys that have gutted the federal government and made it so that like no one can get the treatment they can get in literal third world countries? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, these guys are going to stay. Hell, yeah. With a drive through Yeah. Cool. <laughs> very, very cool. Okay, sorry, Ken. You can continue. <laughs> oh, yeah. So um, part of one of those executive orders that uh, I don't know why. Did, I was shocked that I knew so little about this um, and that it's reported on so little. But um, one, of these, one of these executive orders... Uh, was essentially to give a lot of those same, um, you know, national security, executive privileges um, under conditions of of a pandemic. Um, And so you can uh, tighten borders in ways that you can't, you can conduct surveillance and uh, collect intelligence on people in ways that you, that you can't outside of a pandemic. And uh, perhaps the most interesting part of it is you can detain people uh, for quarantining uh, in such a way. It's called quarantine law. It's a very arcane um, field of law that, um, to my understanding, is one of the only ones where you can essentially detain somebody for not having committed a crime. Uh, and so it, I think the understanding was when Obama came cool. in, he reformed some things, but, you know, in general, kind of left the kind of post-9-11, um, you know, uh, state of affairs in play. And, and that was fine so long as someone didn't um, exploit, in this case, quarantine law. But now we have President Trump. Um, in the White House, and and I think you know I would speculate that uh, that that he's going to use these powers more aggressively than than either of his predecessors did, uh, specifically with respect to um, immigration, which I think is what the document I got shows. It shows all of these again um, forms of surveillance uh, and you know just powers generally that Border Patrol can use, not just on immigrants but also on American citizens um, uh, crossing into the border. Sounds a little ominous. I would think so. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> you don't think so, Ken? Wouldn't this seem to be something that, um, you know, would be the me- something the media's covered, like, prior to a huge <laughs> outbreak? Because we had, like, avian yeah. flu before. And, I mean, scientists understand that this is just, you know, uh, it's sort of like natural disasters. It's something that, that happens with some regularity. So it's not like it was never going to happen, you know? I mean, these things, to some extent you know outbreaks are unavoidable obviously the handling of them the response to them is not that's something that you can control but like the fact that they happen i mean this was going to happen and and even if we you know get lucky with this something like this is going to happen in the future so i just wish there had been some kind of you know scrutiny of 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 these powers that we've given the, the the executive branch uh you know, I can't believe the media failed us on this. <laughs> <laughs> You're the guy on Twitter that anytime I have a scoop that I've like poured myself into and tried to, they're like, oh, real surprising, dude. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we already yeah, knew this, dude. Old news. Oh, <laughs> I love, I love those people when like someone like you or like uh, Jared or Hannah publishes something that like, you know, just confirms with documentation what we all suspected, you'll have some like 40 year old middle aged white guy from San Francisco whose bio is something like fluent and sarcasm, like reply, like, uh, yeah, we know. It's just like, yeah. Well, yeah, no shit. This is the importance of documenting, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Snarktivist. I almost have to give them, I almost have to give them credit because so effortlessly they're like, that's such a, that's way more of an effective dunk than when, what the MAGA people say. You know what I mean? Because then, because the thing is, I often knew it, and people like us often knew it. it that, that's accurate. It's just that 
they're so solipsistic that they can't envision a world in which people like them don't exist and that there are kind of yeah. normies or ordinary people that don't have time to like follow this stuff with a laser focus like we do. It's like, oh, everyone's brain. It's like a kid where you think every other kid, you know, when you're a kid, you, you don't know that some, that someone else doesn't know something that you know. So you have to like rush through the story without filling them in on critical details because yeah. everyone's brain has access to the information mine does. <laughs> That's these guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned like how there is a likelihood that Trump is going to embrace these powers in ways that other presidents haven't, particularly when it comes to like immigration. And this is something that I think is probably one of the most kind of horrifying to imagine possible elements of this whole crisis. Um, just the way that I feel like there's people within in the Trump government, the kind of Stephen Miller faction, who kind of see this as an opportunity to inflict like brutal punishment on some of the the most marginalized people um, currently in the country. And I think that's what I'm kind of getting concerned with right now, thinking about um, as this kind of progresses over the next couple of weeks and starts to spread to these different places. And I, I'm thinking about this like vast network of like immigration detention centers just filled with men, women, and children in close contact with one another. And just something tells me that these people are not going to be getting the resources that they need to uh, stay healthy, uh, especially as the like U S healthcare system, which is, which is already very threadbare becomes strained and possibly overwhelmed over the next couple of weeks. These, some, some of these folks are like the, like right in the firing line of having to, having to, uh, confront that. And it's, it, that's something that really scares me that could get really, really ugly. Yeah. That's a really smart point because, um, there have been inspector general reports, um, in the past, and this has been a concern on the part of anyone who's, uh, you know, has any sort of, uh, kind of medical expertise. They've, they've, they've raised concerns repeatedly about the conditions, uh, not just in ICE, but also in CBP facilities as, um, you know, essentially being concentration camp, uh, uh, conditions where yeah. uh, we saw reported very recently. They couldn't even, Hey, that's soap. offensive to say that it's offensive. to. to <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I did a trope. I, I apologize for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're very bad conditions generally. And, um, it, it, very recently it was reported that, you know, uh, there was one facility, I think it was an ICE facility where they couldn't get soap. Uh, the thing is that's not uncommon in these. I did a story maybe six months ago, um, where I got some documents leaked to me by an ICE official who worked in the um, like healthcare department of, of ICE. And uh, what, what these documents showed was that um, people uh, working, working in that healthcare department were repeatedly sending notices to their superiors um, it, during events in which it seemed likely that someone was going to die because of a lack of treatment. Uh, they're called something like um, serious... I'm trying to remember what they were called. It's some special term for when it's a. Ver it's basically like a code red. It's like the person is. There's a. There's a threat of. You know, um, respond quickly to this because that creates headaches. Uh, you know, administratively, someone dies in custody. Um, and w what I found was that repeatedly they were being sent these uh, memos, uh, and there was no response on the part of leadership, and and people would just die. And this happened. This has happened repeatedly. And so when you have a system like that, that you know, uh, I'm no great enthusiast for our healthcare system, but um, this would seem to be significantly worse even than, than kind of uh, ordinary system that you would see. Not just in ICE and CBP 
detention, but also prisons generally. Um, I do want to note that I think ICE and CBP are significantly worse even than Bureau of Prisons. Um, that's the federal uh, prisons. But um, yeah, low a, bar. Exactly. Yeah, when it's even worse than that, then you have a situation where uh, perhaps the president could, you know, find some detention center where uh, there is an outbreak and say uh, what he's essentially been saying, what he's literally been saying, which is that they, um, you know, Central Americans are bringing the diseases here. He's going to basically yeah. have evidence that he can, you know, uh, frame in a way that, you know, people are not going to have the most nuanced understanding of why that happened. Um, that being that these conditions are terrible and just think what he's been saying, which is that the diseases are coming from elsewhere. And he's mentioned Mexico um, recently in his, in his, you know, sort of talks about this stuff. And um, that's an interesting point because one of the experts that I interviewed was explaining that Mexico actually has one of the lowest incidents of any of the countries um, yeah. that, that we've looked at. So that's a complete red herring. And unfortunately, it seems like people aren't really pushing back very much. Yeah, I, I think part of that also, it's just really telling. Um, and we shouldn't, we certainly shouldn't, not that you guys are, but we shouldn't assume that immigrants in detention facilities are going to be taken care of when we see and hear about horrible conditions in U.S. prisons all over the place. Uh, and I feel like immigrants uh, in those facilities are even more neglected and they're dealt with and they're and they're treated with even more extra judicial circumstances to begin with and i'm really worried about rob you had a really good tweet tweet about it the other day i'm really worried about the well-being of refugees and asylum seekers who are in immigrant detention facilities uh as this thing spreads um it's deeply concerning i mean ken have you heard anything about pushback on that or even anything internally i would assume no internally i would assume they're not changing anything no um i mean it would it, like the story I had several months ago, they couldn't even get policy to change when they were issuing these um, sort of, you know, red alerts over uh, persons dying, um, you know, and these institutions have every reason not to let them um, die, at least in the sense that that creates um, headaches for them with respect to Congress and then, you know, people getting upset. Um, one would expect, I think, conditions to be bad, but more so, more similar to the Bureau of Prisons where... Um, perhaps they're you know very inhumane and, and 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 just generally awful, but but not but not repeatedly leading to you know people literally dying. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I think there's every reason to be concerned because it's even worse now. Um, they're going to have fewer resources because CBP plays a very important role. That's Customs and Border Protection um, in in responses to um, uh, pandemics. Uh, and not not all of the response is necessarily bad. I mean, there are administrative things they can do um, that 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 can help. Uh, but one can you know imagine a lot of abuses. And uh, in addition to that, they're going to have staffing problems. If you look at the document, it describes that they anticipate themselves that huge amounts of uh, staff are going to um, you know stop showing up to work, um, presumably from catching these things. And the consequence of that is going to be even less staffing in the prisons that we already know um, have catastrophically bad conditions. So, um, yes, I'm very pessimistic about the outlook. Yeah, and I'm seeing stories right now, like on Rikers Island, they're running out of soap right now. So, like, they, that's what I mean about being a low bar. I mean, the, the U.S. prison system is already fucking barbaric in the, the way people are treated there. And this is, like, below that. And we know people; these illnesses are spreading already, and people are dying in these these camps already. So that's that's I think one of the really scary aspects about what could possibly be happening in the next couple of weeks uh, in the United States. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting, though, um, 
because you're talking about how uh, Trump and the federal government has these kind of extraordinary powers and they may be used for these nefarious purposes. But there's also kind of something that I find pretty interesting, which is that people are kind of approaching this crisis to push through positive reforms and in, in this kind of broken political system that's kind of um, not really used to having you know, drastic change come through very easily. But people are starting to use this to advocate for kind of stuff like people are are already kind of trying to advocate for um, I think I saw a story today about how like uh, juries are suspended in, in this one criminal court for the next month for like nonviolent offenses. And there's there's kind of a movement building to possibly talk about, I like I don't know how much impact this is going to have, but like releasing nonviolent drug offenders or, or or people that are in this prison system that really like don't need to be there. Um, I mean that's kind of interesting. There's there's all the whole kind of economic stuff where people are kind of now pushing for things like a, a universal basic income or sick leave or. Uh, um, you know, protections and more of a social safety net for people that are going to be affected monetarily by by what's happening. So it, at the same time that it's scary to think about the Trump administration using this situation to, uh, you know, directly harm people, which I, I have no doubt they are kind of uh, going to do. There is kind of also an interesting possibility here to push through reforms that I think could take months or years of debate and, and work uh, in a in a quicker fashion. It's kind of it's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. That's exactly what I was trying to do with the story. Um, I'm trying to use this as an opportunity to uh, essentially relitigate the post 9/11 um, kind of legal apparatus that that has been established, which I think has always been very dangerous. But it's easy um, for people when you have leaders that govern more to the center. It's easy for people to be um, sort of complacent about it and think, ah, oh, well, you know, maybe these things are scary, but you know, Obama's not going to go too crazy with it or, you know, whatever it may be. And now with Trump and the conditions being what they are now with coronavirus, um, I do think that there's more interest in discussing these things that are generally treated as sort of arcane matters, which uh, they're absolutely not. We are always at risk. I mean, if you look at any um, sort of health expert, it's understood that something like this can happen at any at any time and, and does happen, in fact, with some regularity, um, as with um, natural disasters. So um, I do think there's a big opportunity to talk about things that, that we didn't. And you mentioned the 9-11 apparatus, um, and this has been defended and even recently upheld, if I recall correctly. I think Spencer Ackerman wrote about it recently, uh, about how they kind of just quietly, um, you know, continued and extended pretty much every aspect of the Patriot Act without touching, like, any of it. Um and this has widely been decried by civil rights groups and technology groups as invasive. Uh, we saw how that <laughs> manifested in the Snowden uh, documents as written about by Glenn Greenwald. And it's just kind of like warrantless uh, clandestine surveillance um, and violating civil liberties. Uh, so people who defend this usually do so on kind of hawkish national security lines what what do you what is your argument to them of, of why we should reconsider this in your quest for relitigation well i would say that um i tend to be even closer to the center um than, than oh, moderate ken now <laughs> we know why you're banned because I, um I, I do think that there are such a thing there is such a thing as sort of a national security crisis and that in some respects um things things under those conditions should be relaxed um, however, the way you go about executing that can take a lot of different forms. Um, 
one way it can, you know, uh, one form it can take is making it easier for the government to fund things without necessarily needing, you know, a, a broad congressional vote on it. I think in, you know, certain respects that can make in case of an emergency like this. But on the other hand, as you point out, you can conduct um, mass surveillance, which is exactly what, um, you know, Border Patrol is authorized to do, um, as this as this document I got shows. And, and the problem with um, mass surveillance is that the quality of the information at that point becomes very low. This is also something that we found out from Snowden, is when you're just hoovering everything up without any regard to you know, essentially establishing a reasonable suspicion or um, some kind of um, probable cause, uh, or having a you know judge issue a warrant for something, then you're basically inundated in, in low quality information, and it ends up being a very low, um, you know, it's it's not very actionable. That is to say, you can't. It's hard. It's hard to use in a way that would like you know meaningfully help you in in, in catching a uh, you know terrorist or something like that. And I think that's I think the same is the case here. Um, is that when you you know authorize these broad powers, this kind of sledgehammer approach um, it has a tendency to, um, you know, even if intentions are good, which in many cases they they probably aren't, um, it, it it still ends up not being particularly useful. And and that is you know that's all of the stuff I've just been saying now is is assuming that that the authorities are not going to have their own interests. Which as um, Rob said earlier. Um, you look at Stephen Miller. I mean, I was talking to an expert at uh, Project and Government Oversight, Catherine Hawkins, and and she said that um, you know while while no one has abused these powers to you know a particularly shocking extent in the past, when you have someone like Stephen Miller, um, you know, not just in the administration but also playing a role in the coronavirus response, she says um, that she would not be surprised if the administration tried to um, take advantage of these things. And I I, I think that's a very reasonable. Uh, way to look at this because um, when you look at migration, this is one of his key issues coming into an election, and he's going to want to bring somebody like me to the base. And um, when you look at what that would mean in a situation like this, there are some very ugly possibilities. Yeah, but one one thing that I think is kind of cool about this moment, um, like we said, it's 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 scary in many levels, obviously. But it's also like it, it's it's heightening a lot of contradictions, and it's it, there's a lot of possibilities kind of swirling around in this moment to uh, to do good things. Like uh, I mean, just the way that the whole how we're going to pay for it argument has kind of just like gone out the window, as the the like economy has been affected by this, and they're saying just like oh yeah, we should just like wave wave interest on student debt payments, and like normally in our health system, all this this treatment and the the testing would be expensive, but oh, we're just going to waive that and make it free. And there's people saying like, well, Kent, we could just do that all the time, maybe. I mean, that could be good also. I just saw in New York City, they're, they're waiving evictions for the next three months. And it's like, why don't, you know, why stop there? Just this idea that like, oh, no, we can never we can never do any of this stuff. We can't afford it. We can't afford any of these social programs. But now that there's this crisis, it's like, oh, we can't afford it. We just don't want to do this stuff. Yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways, prosperity can sort of breed complacency. Um, you know, when things are not going terribly, it's easy to harbor a lot of illusions about things. Like, um, I mean, like, you know, you can't say that um, the Patriot Act isn't being abused all the time, but it's abused in such a way that a lot of the country doesn't really have to think about it. You know, it's targeted. To yeah. It's easy to ignore it. And things are becoming a lot harder to ignore when you have a genuine, you know, a, a major broad-based crisis that affects everyone's life. Well, it shows how bullshit all these things are like well did you see that quote did you see that clip from i think ben bernanke floating around uh from about the time i think it was like around the time of the bailouts and asking if this is tax money and he's like no it's not tax money we just we just changed the number in the computer 
And it's like, <laughs> yeah, cool. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, yeah, it's it, they like the experts that run this stuff and went to Harvard and everything are essentially talking about it in behind closed doors in as like blunt of terms as like any like couch surfing dirtbag leftist would, which is like just yeah. print more money, man. It's fine. Just change the numbers. Yeah. Right. Money is not plus. real. It's not yeah. real, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's, in, I mean, I think if you're seeing that as an outside observer, it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, can like, can we just change a bunch of other numbers too? Uh, maybe take a look at some of those, uh, those numbers, the credit card debt and the student loan debt and the medical debt. We can just change those numbers as well. <laughs> you know, who knows? I'm just thinking at the end of Elysium where he goes into the computer and he has to change the, the minus into a plus or what? He just changes like one word and it, it saves the, saves the day. I can't remember the exact, um, details, but it's like literally like that in macroeconomics. Like you spend your way out of crises. That's what we learned <laughs> from world war two. You don't cut, Cutting is exactly what you don't do. And, you know, serious economists understand this, but um, these facts have to be obscured to the general public who are sort of induced to think that macroeconomic policy is the same as um, balancing your checkbook. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Not the same. Not the same, folks. You heard it here first. (laughs) Jordan, you're quiet. Did we piss you off? Did we piss you off about our macroeconomic um, discourse? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're trying to make me take economics 101. Shit. yeah no i uh I had, I had someone like tweet that at me the other day because i was like pointing out that there's just like there's always an urgency for the government and the federal reserve for everyone to rush to inject tons of cash to save businesses we saw it with the federal reserve to stabilize the debt markets we saw it with trump to, to get money to the small business association to for, for loans for companies we saw it today with this national emergency freeing up $50 billion for states. It's just there's never a question of the importance or urgency for any of these things when it comes to businesses and commerce. But never, ever is there the same urgency for the poor or the disadvantaged, ever. And people yeah. try to draw distinctions and try to, like, split hairs over people criticizing or mocking the Federal Reserve response, like, well, actually, you know, a lot of people's retirements are in the market, so it does affect working class people, too. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. But it never is an exclusive problem to them that would ever warrant that same urgency. That's just a coincidence that they happen yeah. to be involved. It's always urgent if it's the wealthy. Yeah, you know what else You know what also helps those people? Like, food stamps. Like, right. <laughs> just give them some of those. Which, which they're fucking kicking people off of. Yeah, exactly. I like how much of a fraud it exposes um, the notions of the market to be when you just have like radical market violation or is it like one yeah. what, what was it like 1.5 trillion infusion which is like <laughs> yeah. that's not even outside of the norm because the whole thing is controlled we have central banks this isn't like we're not you know like we have a global international society where uh, sta- and it's good that they do that it's like not good that they're just pumping it into you know banks necessarily like conceivably you could put money into things in a, such a way that would help you know workers and, and ordinary people but it's not inherently bad that they're like uh you know fiddling with it it's just how they're doing it but uh you know w- like all of that aside uh there's obvious market uh violations of market principles all the time and that's just how the world works <laughs> yeah no, it's just, it's funny, and I think it's something that people are internalizing, seeing this stuff play out. It's like, oh, this is all just, like, arbitrary bullshit, and they, things don't have to be the way they are currently, indefinitely, because of these, like, these these arbitrary rules. 
uh, we can actually just, you know, completely decide to do other stuff and, and prioritize other stuff. We just choose not to. Uh, and I think people are kind of figuring that out. It's almost like humans have like creative capacities and they can like manipulate the world around them and like cre- and like make things a certain way and not just be subject to like nature. We're not we're not just like animals running around. Yeah. Yeah. It's so you mentioned that these things are just arbitrary and you know, they could easily remove them. And they're doing so now some places, sure. And usually states and look like municipalities are, you know, blo- stopping evictions, doing different things like that. Um but the question remains, if they understand that this is a sympathetic thing to do, why not do this all the time? And it's just like, my, my problem now is, well, one of, one of my many problems now is, is seeing fucking Joe Biden out there talking about, oh, we need strong leadership. We need this and that. We need faster tests. We need cheap tests. This, this, all this kind of stuff. But this only applies in a moment of crisis. Yeah. Like his health insurance I mean. plan yeah. leaves 10 million people uninsured. What do they not deserve the same standard of care any other time? Like, what? Why? Why not everybody all the time? Why is it? And I think it's just a, a just a different worldview. This neoliberal worldview is perfectly willing to, you know, just look at different margins, like on some sort of bell curve. And you know what? Here, cut off the bottom half here or the bottom sliver here. These people do not matter, and that's it. Whatever happens, to them happens. And it's just like that's that's why I'm so uh, motivated by the Sanders campaign and leftist causes because it leaves nobody behind. And this is just another example and a pretty grim example of, of a neoliberal governance that is perfectly willing to abandon people. Yeah. There's like that tweet, like the economics 101, you see where that line meets that line. Uh, well below that, that's where people starve. And it's just <laughs> yeah, like, right. you know, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't, right. it really doesn't. Not at all. It's, it's comical the extent to which it's clear that, um, it, the entire government response to this is to give people like just enough health care that they that we don't all die in, in this like cataclysm, but not a penny more than that. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're trying to, like you said, like look at the two lines of the chart <laughs> and find that find that sweet spot where they're not going to spend a yeah. fucking dime more than what is going to prevent the absolute worst from happening. Yeah. So speaking of like the absolute worst from happening, I just like before we we sign off here, I would like to take a kind of broader view and get your opinion, Ken, on like where like what's your anxiety level right now about where things are going uh, in the United States um, over the next couple of of weeks and months? How are you feeling? How what, what's your confidence level that uh, the United States is going to be able to actually confront this without things like really spiraling into a very ugly kind of chaotic situation? Well, I think we've gotten very lucky that um, that there hasn't been some kind of health crisis from um, the ICE and NCBP facilities already, like beyond what what it has been. Um, and so yeah. now, I think I'm, with- I'm talking more about because I feel like we're just still in the very, very, very uh, beginning of this crisis, uh, and it's something that is really going to we're going to really start to see the the impact of it in like over the next like two three weeks and then you know in the months after that um as like more and more people you know show symptoms of this uh disease as this the the healthcare system becomes strained um just that that leads to like a whole lot of pretty dangerous possibilities and uh, i'd like to it's difficult to talk about because i don't want to sound alarmist and i definitely don't want people to panic or worry too much about it but 
it, it is troubling, I think, when you start to game out some of like the worst case scenarios here. Um, yeah, I almost don't think you can be too alarmist um, about it. And I would encourage people to look at the document uh, that was leaked to me. It's embedded in uh, the article at The Nation. Um, and if you look at the document itself, CBP, um, they themselves describing um, what would happen, um, they are extremely alarmist about it. And uh, bear in mind, this is an internal document. It was not intended uh, for public release. It's marked um, for official use only. So um, I don't think that it's like a propaganda thing necessarily. I think that um, when you mix pandemics with the conditions that I was describing um, earlier, it, you can only really limit it by your imagination how awful um, it, it can and I, I believe will be. Because again, as you say, the, the growth uh, in, in the spreading of these kind of diseases is not um, you know, it's not a straight line. It's not. It's not arithmetic. It's a geometric growth. It's gonna, this is going to mushroom. It's going to happen very fast, and we're yeah. still in the incipient stages of it. So you can't just assume it'll stay at roughly. Um, the, the response had to happen early on. Not. It, it seems very clear to me that they muted the response and delayed it because they knew that it was going to hurt the markets. To be honest about it and say, guys, we have a problem. And so what they yeah. ended up doing was delaying this for so long that um, at this point, so many people have it. it. To me, it's inconceivable that we're going to be able to, I'm not saying it's not important to try to um, you know, mitigate the effects of it, but uh, it seems to me that the genie's out of the bottle and this is going to continue to spread. And again, the sort of nightmare situation I described before being that um, you know, th this might affect a bunch of uh, migrants we have in, in these detention facilities. I'm terrified of that because I do not believe for a second that Trump will not go full force uh, and use that first re-election uh, to, to uh, uh, quite scary effect, because I think that uh, it, at least a large portion of the country will be receptive to it. Oh, I think so. I think there's a, there is. And that, that leads me to something that I was kind of thinking, this is like the real, real nightmare shit that I really, I hope to be wrong about. And I hope this is just me being alarmist, but just the idea that as these kinds of institutions become overwhelmed there's a possibility maybe of like the rule of law, maybe starting to break down a little bit and throughout America, you've got a lot of heavily armed individuals and groups and militias that are like deeply immersed in this kind of like end times rhetoric. Um, that's when I start to get kind of, uh, alarmed thinking about, uh, maybe some of these folks, at some point kind of seeing this as like the scenario they've been imagining for a while now and maybe starting to, you know, uh, take matters into their own hands and start to kind of like act on some of these violent, uh, fantasies that they've been having for a long time. Uh, these are a lot of this is really steeped in white supremacy too and stuff. And, uh, especially when you kind of think about the ways that I think people on the far right are going to be blaming, migrants and blaming like the other for bringing this disease to America, they start going to try and, uh, you know, uh, live out some of these violent fantasies they've been having. And that's, that's, that's where it starts to be like a really, really terrifying nightmare scenario. And that's really something that I really hope to be wrong about. And that's, I'm just being paranoid and alarmist, but no, I don't that's, think that's, that's what I mean. There's just, there's, there's a lot of really frightening possibilities. Um, that could arise from this and that's one of them well i don't know man i i think you might be everyone has doomsday militias all over the world right that's yeah. not a purely yeah. american yeah. problem <laughs> the the danish doomsday militias were always hearing about yeah yeah. yeah the quebecky uh doomsday like the three percenters <laughs> 
Well, that's the thing. There, I mean, there are white supremacists in Canada. There are people that are that are very racist towards uh, immigrants. Um, yeah, like these things do exist. Like you're joking, but these things do exist here, <laughs> but not to the same level of like we're we're armed with like military grade uh, weapons of of death. That's where it's kind of a different uh, situation. Yeah, because they're slappers only up there, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you got to laugh sometimes. Yeah. Folks, we like to laugh. have fun. You don't laugh, you'll cry. We like to have fun on it. Yeah, and we're not all gloom and doom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, right. Uh, like that's the kind of thing that uh, I, I do hope to be wrong about. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, that's why it's a scary moment. It's a, like That's what I'm kind of getting at before, too. It's, it's a scary scary moment and it's it's i think people are right to be anxious and alarmist about it but it's also a moment that's ripe with possibility to possibly change things for the better um so uh hopefully it will be the latter and not the not the whole uh, uh death cult militia uh thing can we call this episode can we call this episode crisis tunity like the homer simpson quote <laughs> crisis <laughs> sure whatever you want ken <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's getting a little presumptuous, like naming episodes now. Like, let's, yeah, let's pump the brakes on that a bit. Jesus I mean. Christ! Yeah. Well, you see, the way power works is you just got to kind of act like you own the place, and people yeah. take you. So. Uh-huh. Ken's I doing think... his own like shock doctrine thing here. Is using the opportunity that's been created. <laughs> no, to you know what it is. Come and I, start. I just making saw... all kinds of changes. He's gonna tweet out he's the new host. <laughs> he's just, he's I just over. saw Magnolia for the first time, and so I, I like called into that. Um, Tom Cruise, like, uh, yes. Do you remember the pickup yeah. artist thing where it was like one eight hundred or learn learn how to tame her? And so I yeah. applied these <laughs> principles, but to podcast hosts that have been that have been mean <laughs> to me. So really, you brought this on yourselves. Well, we weren't really yeah. mean to you. You know what you did, but yeah. Let's oh, anyway. <laughs> Although I Great love movie. I I I we we typically do like references to like reviews and stuff. Um, either at the beginning or at the end uh but the reviews referencing ken uh on itunes have been fucking hysterical like yeah. i i, I think 90 am... percent of the itunes reviews are reference ken in some way <laughs> yeah. they're really good they've, and uh, they're either pro the or anti-ken they're like censoring his name now it's, it's, it's amazing <laughs> it's so good did i tell you i had people tell me we we have like the P, we have like a PR person um, at the nation that that handles like sort, sort of like uh, mediates with with uh, different you know shows for and stuff. She's like, wait, did you get banned from their show? <laughs> she didn't understand. <laughs> she didn't understand the irony level that <laughs> that we're all. And your dad. <laughs> yeah, your dad. Can you describe your dad's situation for the listeners? <laughs> He's becoming online. They've become self-aware. Data Dine has become self-aware. And it's very <laughs> yeah. uneasy because. On the one hand, he's becoming a Bernie guy, very fervent Bernie guy now. However, nice. he's also seeing like all that. of my tweets and Jordan's, and he informed me that um, our accounts he checks every day. That's like the first. So, um, very mixed feelings on it. I, I do, I do like that he's, uh, you know, developing his politics more, um, getting more involved. Uh, not a big fan of that. Like anything I ship post is going to be seen by him that day, <laughs> but. Um, I guess it's it's crisis tunity, right? That's right. Yeah. Ken, uh, plug your stuff. Where can people find you? Oh, um, they can find me on Twitter at Ken Klippenstein. I write for the Nation. And um, please, if you're government, send me a text to two zero two five one zero twelve sixty eight via Signal that encrypts your message and leak 
uh, leak documents to Ken. Uh, Ken has made a career pivot. Sure, he's a, he was the FOIA guy. Uh, Ken is now, it's like the Drake meme. He's pointing now at, at leaks. Yeah. So make sure you leak government documents to Ken. I was like the yes. Brett Favre of FOIA, but then I left and I joined the Vikings. <laughs> the Vikings, yeah. That's the leaks now. The leaks. It's a real Wisconsin reference for you. It's like the <laughs> o- is that the only sports reference you get? <laughs> well, because everyone would wear the jerseys, and then um, after he left, they started wearing jerseys that said um, Judas on the back with his number. <laughs> wow. Yeah, people very feel very strongly about that. So that's sort of I bet. burned into my yeah. So is that yes? That's the only sports reference. You <laughs> yep, that's yes. <laughs> All right, thanks, Ken. We'll we'll talk to you. Well, no, Never. you won't be coming back on the show again, unfortunately. But you know, Had possibly in some other context, we'll 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 interact at some point in the future. We'll see. <laughs> All right, take care. Thanks. Okay, Ken. bye, guys. I yeah. simply cannot vibe. You can vibe. I was telling Jordan before the show, it's like, you know, I understand that people are nervous sometimes about, you know, speaking publicly or speaking on a podcast or whatever. But it's like, I'm a, I'm a moron. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't affect me. I'm, I talk on podcasts all the time. I just I just hate being perceived. All my homies hate being perceived. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that meme. But I hate Joe Biden. All my homies hate Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, you really could use it for everything, but. It's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. Well, we're here with uh, Aida Chavez. <laughs> Has joined the program. We're delighted to have you, Aida. How's it going? Good. Hiding from coronavirus. Yeah, same. I just had to um I just had to shoo my my son out of the out of the the uh, insurgent studios who had wandered down here cuz now is his uh, daycare is canceled for the next two weeks up here, at least, and uh, all schools are canceled, and everything's everything's pretty much shutting down up here in in Montreal. So, uh, probably there's going to be probably there's going to be little kid noises throughout the next couple of episodes of the show, uh, as we're in we're all uh, we're all in quarantine mode now. <laughs> that sucks, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, it really sucks to spend time with your family. That's yeah. what I was implying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it's 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 kind of fun. It's kind of it's like a little adventure. Duh. All right. Well, each their yeah. own, I guess. That that could possibly age badly, me saying that. Yeah. So. Well, I was just saying, you're like on day what? 1 or yeah. 2. Yeah. Um I just I just, I I'm looking forward to a month or like three weeks or whatever hopefully more of not socializing at all that that sounds really great yeah okay, i'm on day four of quarantine and i already feel like a caveman <laughs> yeah do you like it or do you want to like so socialize <sighs> i don't know i i think <laughs> like i would like it more if it weren't forced you know yeah yeah, yeah. you had just like a staycation <laughs> without like weird like doom scenarios happening without the pandemic yes yeah okay cool that has kind of cast a pall over everything hasn't it that whole that whole thing that whole situation (laughs) yeah i think it has i think it has rob i think the (laughs) pandemic has uh has affected things (laughs) yeah definitely the, the the possibility for like global economic collapse and all the weird things that are come out, going to come out of that and mm-hmm. you know not to mention the uh 
you know, widespread disease. <laughs> That's that none of that is really contributing to a, a fun environment, uh, no matter where you are. Even if working from home or staying doing a staycation, generally it can be kind of enjoyable. But yeah, it's not that kind of stuff makes it makes it less less pleasant, definitely. Yeah, it really casts a shadow. Over it. <laughs> uh, Aida, yeah. Aida, so we, you're here to uh, talk about your latest piece in the Washington Post, even though you write for The Intercept, uh, about AOC and her pragmatism. Uh, could you give us, I guess, a brief rundown of well, the, you know, your your main thesis, and then we could we could springboard from there. Sure. So she's been pretty nice about Warren and Warren supporters and believe it or not that's made a lot of lefties like mad online um just like arguing that like strategically that's not a good thing or somehow dilutes like Bernie's movement but you know I disagree I think of course like Bernie supporters have all the right in the world uh to be like root online or to be like uh, skeptical uh, of people saying that the strategy should be to like um, watch your tone and stuff but I think AOC like obviously occupies like a very different role in this she's an elected official and I think her efforts to kind of bring um, normie Democrats into the movement um, are not just like pragmatic but I think they're going to bring uh, the Bernie wing of the party uh, a lot further in the years to come. Right. So some of this outrage that we've seen toward uh, AOC has been, you know, like kind of like innocuous stuff, like the tweet that a lot of even Bernie surrogates and some campaign staffers or like staff adjacent people were tweeting was like, I'm a Bernie supporter who works and builds or whatever links and builds, whatever they were saying with foreign <laughs> yeah. supporters. And it's just like, that's, I mean, okay. Like the yeah. progressive camp is like largely overlapping between those two campaigns. So yeah, this, and this was also was confusing. This was also prior to, it wasn't prior to Super Tuesday, but it was prior to last Tuesday, the election with, uh, with Michigan and all these other states in play. And this was when still a uh, Warren endorsement was possibly like in play and could have maybe moved the needle a little bit on that stuff. So yeah. I don't see, you know, I don't see why reaching out to that was um, was like problematic. I, I do understand why people are frustrated and upset with Warren and her campaign in particular. Um, so I kind of get why emotions are high about this. But yeah, I don't I, I you see what she's doing when she's doing that stuff, which is trying to like build bridges. Like that's what she's kind of been doing since she got into Congress. She's been like, she's been kind of trying to build bridges with the Pelosi side of the party and trying to, you know, be a uniter. And I think, I think sometimes depending on how much faith you have in that, those parts of the democratic party, you might view that as being folly, but I feel like that's who she's been since she, since she got there. Right. And it's also really important to separate politicians um, and leaders from the people who follow them and support them because we're going to have to win all kinds of people over if we want to build a mass movement. And so to do it in a way where you're not sacrificing any of your values or I guess like changing any of your policy goals um, and still like trying to win people over, I just honestly see that as like effective politics. But 
um, a lot of people still conflate um, supporters like with the politicians, like conflate Warren with Warren supporters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I've had a lot of pretty rude Biden bros in my menchies sometimes, so maybe I need to raise this and <laughs> and get the get the media to get on this story. It's a hot story that I think they should be talking about. All kinds of mean comments have been directed towards me in some of the, some of my posts online. It okay, can we talk about the fact that Biden um, just basically recruited K Hive, which is the most like terrifying group of yes. people on the internet I have ever seen. <laughs> Just basically it, like a death cult, just out for pure destruction and chaos. It's between like BTS fans and K Hive are like the two scariest groups on the internet. I think <laughs> they've like superseded the the Bay Hive. They've just like taken over. And yeah, like sheer lunacy. Yeah, there's that one guy that's just like he has he does these video video oh, kind of vlogs. He he's got the he's AirPods. So he's cool. just like for Sanders Sanders, fuck you, Sanders Sanders. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. why aren't we talking about this on CNN? We gotta get we gotta get. Uh, fucking jake tapper on this he's got to watch this stuff yeah that's the thing like it would never really people was are being about... mean online i can't believe this yeah it wasn't about like sanders or his supporters and like that just served as a springboard to attack him it was just like another instance of manufacturing consent but then that set up like the warren quote that like bernie's campaign was built on a foundation of hate like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me yeah Sorry, well, and earlier earlier in the campaign, we were told you guys were exactly the same, and there was no difference. So what yeah. is it? Yeah, and I guess that's why I could I, like I, I I'm not totally agreeing with this, but I do see why people were kind of frustrated with AOC kind of trying to make gestures toward the Warren campaign, or when when Warren went on SNL and danced, and AOC kind of had like a okay, this is epic kind of comment. <laughs> like I can kind of get why people are upset by that um especially yeah since since that was a time when a warren endorsement could have possibly moved the needle on some of those states uh last week and instead she goes on fucking snl and makes right. a big joke about it so i, I kind of get why people were mad but again I, it's like that's what that's what aoc's i feel like that's what she sees what her role has always been so I right don't think I, that's gonna stop i totally get um that anger and i think um when people are literally dying, um, they're totally entitled to be angry and rude about, um, you know, her tweet being like, okay, this is epic. But <laughs> I, I guess like my calm uh, was looking at it strictly from an electoral perspective. And like, at the end of the day, yeah. I am like a socialist. And so I see electoralism as just like one very necessary tool um, that we're going to need uh, to get what we want. And so I, I think like the Democratic Party um, is one of the biggest obstacles that we face. And so and we can't circumvent it. And so if we want to rack up electoral wins, like we are going to need like more AOCs and stuff doing their AOC thing um, <laughs> yeah. and appealing to normies. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you're, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And I think a lot of people don't quite think about that. <laughs> like at all yeah. i mean a lot it's, it's very easy for me to sit online and piss and moan and demand that everyone be exactly as far left as i am at all times without considering like how things work uh, it's just like it's it's i don't know they kind of lose sight of, of of reality there's a tweet i think about 
all the time since reading it. It's uh, it, it was in regards to the movie Parasite, and it says the movie Parasite was fine, but its politics were a bit iffy. It would have been <laughs> way better if at the end of the movie, the Parasite turned to the camera and said, I am a communist now, and then specified he's the exact same kind of communist <laughs> I am. And it's like, it just so perfectly encapsulates that type of like hell-bent, I'm as far left as you can get Twitter mentality where just like, if you aren't with me 100%, like, in this, in every single capacity, like, you're just, you might as well just be, like, just like completely fuck you. And I think uh, a lot of people, a lot of people threw that onto Bernie unfairly because he never, he never actually acted like that. But I do think there's people that just think that AOC was going to go in as some Marxist Leninist, <laughs> and that was yeah. never really Tanky. the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, she was gonna, just, like, full Stalin mode. <laughs> I love that tanky yeah. AOC. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hate that actually if, if she was like that. Oh, please uh, don't. Yeah, no, I do. I do think that's a case of people have kind of projected their own beliefs onto onto her and want to believe that that she's going to represent these exact things. But it, you know, and I think she's done really great things um, throughout the last you know what is it year? I guess that she's been in Congress. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone should fool them fool themselves and think that she's you know there to just like, fucking um, you know I am the state now or whatever. Um, I, I I know what did you make of this story that came out in the HuffPost today? Uh, that that said AOC declined to do more campaign events with Sanders. Was that just like muckraking and trying to stir up shit, or was there anything to that? Do you think, or what was going on with that? Um. Well, I was kind of looking at the same thing. Um. Because that was a question that I had um, a little while ago. I was kind of wondering where she went because uh, I don't know if you guys were following this at all, but like she campaigned for Bernie before the Iowa caucuses and then kind of disappeared a little bit in the days. I did find that kind of odd. Yeah, in the days leading up to it. And then she went back on the campaign trail to do that uh, rally with the Strokes in New Hampshire. And then she kind of disappeared again, didn't do the rounds on cable news, uh, didn't go back on the campaign trail for any of the Super Tuesday states. And, you know, it's not like she herself is, like, responsible for getting Bernie, like, over the finish line. None of that. I guess I was just, like, curious of, like, did something happen there? Why... Uh, does she seem to be a little bit lower profile than she was in the beginning? Um, and then Vanity Fair reported that part of it was she was, an, or her team was annoyed with the Rogan endorsement, which wasn't even like an endorsement endorsement. It was like an unofficial endorsement. And that the Sanders team was annoyed with her comments on abolishing ICE, I mean, personally, I didn't really buy that, to be completely honest, Um, especially since, like, that article came out around the time, um, I think it came out, like, a while after New Hampshire, but, like, no one had revisited after Super Tuesday, and so I found it, like, difficult to believe that, like, um, they were holding grudges because of Rogan and Abolish Ice, you know? Um... And so I did ask around about that, and it seemed like the answer was just that she's 
preoccupied with her own like reelection and her own work. Um, but I don't know. I I I do wonder why uh, she didn't like push harder um, in such a critical time, especially when you know establishment all coalesced behind like Biden. That was really critical, like twenty four hours too. Um, but it seems like now yeah. uh, she's back. Like she has uh, been on the news um, more often, um, like advocating for Sanders, and has been back on the campaign trail and. I do think to a certain extent, like demanding, like, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you doing more? Um, That is kind of like a waste of time. But I mean, I do wonder why it it was just like such a critical moment and like everything happened all at once. I do wonder why um, like that didn't uh, cause her to come out in full force. What do you guys think? My my thought was, so we, they had those in, what was it? Early to mid or actually maybe late January. They had uh, those events and and rallies with like you know most of the squad was there and there was that big kerfuffle over Rashida Tlaib booing Hillary and pe- people were just you know attacking the squad and like oh this is just Bernie's campaign out here attacking someone we love and I think mm-hmm. maybe because the first two states were more moderate than others they were trying to maybe there was some mutual sentiment that they they didn't think it was it was too beneficial to have them out there i don't know if that's the case i'm purely speculating but remember that also happened but we didn't really talk about the implications of that if there were any um i also am confused generally of like what the this abolish ice accusation or claim could be because they weren't they in alignment like doesn't bernie also want to abolish ice so what would what would he yeah. be upset about right um no you're, you're totally right and like I covered Bernie's immigration plan uh, when it came out and it was easily like the strongest um, thing that's ever come from that campaign on immigration. And so um, I'm not sure that that's just like what Vanity Fair reported. And also it was citing um, some Sanders staffers. So it's entirely possible that like um, most of the Sanders campaign totally agrees and like didn't notice or care about that, but maybe just like a, a few that the reporter like spoke with, like were annoyed that that's possible too. Yeah. It, it is like, it is a little bit odd. Um, the whole trajectory from, from heavily campaigning at the beginning to kind of disappearing. It does make me kind of wonder about that, but I do, I see people that are, I mean, online, whether you're on, more on the left or on the right, online is a very, like, reactionary space. Mm-hmm. And people kind of just, like, I've seen some people kind of just like, That's good. she's garbage, uh, she screwed us over, or whatever. But the reality is that she endorsed Sanders immediately after he had a heart attack. Right. And, his, like, his campaign was effectively finished at that point, mm-hmm. I think. And that really did help revive it uh, and bring it back. They did that big rally um in brooklyn and so she like she was really a fundamental part of like putting him in a strong position at the beginning of the of the primary so uh, you know i don't think people should be like canceling her over any of this stuff <laughs> right i also wonder you know if she had if she had campaigned with bernie in south carolina would he have won would we uh, would those numbers have reversed no they wouldn't have right um 
as you mentioned, you mentioned Super Tuesday. That's that's a little bit shakier because of the way the establishment coalesced around Biden, and maybe that could have made some kind of impact as well. But again, it's like even with that stuff, looking at the polling heading into Super Tuesday, it looked pretty good for Sanders. Like it, it was a pretty surprising result. So I'm not sure that. You know, in hindsight, you can say, yeah, she she should have uh, campaigned with him in these Super Tuesday states. But at the time, it was looking pretty good for Bernie. Uh, we talked about it plenty on this show. So, you know, it's kind of a hindsight is 2020 thing. But th- that's it. It's like, uh, I don't think she should be getting canceled over this. It's It's a little odd. And sometimes, I guess, I personally do find it a little frustrating when she's kind of clearly making overtures to the more liberal side of the party, the more neoliberal of side the more establishment side and kind of trying to um speak their language a bit i find that personally kind of uh, frustrating i guess a bit but um no i do wish i do wish um she didn't take the bait and i think so far like the other squad members have had their moments where they have taken the bait as well like when Rashida like kind of apologized for the Hillary booing thing. I wish yeah. she didn't say anything at all. She should have owned it. But um, I I think so far from what we've seen um, of AOC in Congress, like she does tend to kind of fold to that kind of bad faith stuff easier yes. than someone like Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib. Um, and honestly. I no, I really don't know what to make um, of the of the HuffPost story today about her refusing to campaign because uh, I do know that the Sanders campaign did want her on the trail more. Like um, it's not that they didn't; they did. And so I guess yeah, you kind of have to wonder um, why so kind of like wishy-washy at times um but i just haven't thought about it long enough um to make like a real judgment on it um i I guess like i came to it more from like a place of curiosity of just like where's aoc where is she yeah yeah um you know that's it it's like sometimes like i get why people get frustrated I, i sometimes get frustrated sort of the when she kind of uses this kind of very uh, liberal kind of woke language to kind of try to signal to, to this crowd. And like, I don't know if you're familiar with Star Trek The Next Generation, but there's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation uh, called Darmok, where Captain Picard is stranded on this planet with this, this alien guy. And he has a universal translator that translates all these alien languages, but he can't understand what the guy says. And he realizes eventually, the guy keeps saying, uh, Darmok and Tanagra, when the walls fell. And Picard has no idea what he's talking about. And he eventually realizes that he uh, this this race of aliens just speak in metaphor. And they, they use these metaphors to communicate with each other. And when you learn about this, you can kind of understand what they're saying, communicate with them. So sometimes I feel like that's what AOC is doing a little way, in a little bit, uh, signaling to these sort of uh, uh, more liberal, more kind of identity politics crowds like uh, uh, Hermione Granger uh, at the West Wing when the Death Star fell and stuff like that. Like she's trying to like speak their language to get them to understand. Um, but yeah, it's, it has been kind of odd, but um, uh, th- this whole campaign and the sort of on off aspect of it. But um, I still think, she, like I said, I think she did a lot of just the fact that she endorsed him in the first place uh, was, I think should kind of give her the benefit of the doubt on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um 
Yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel. About it. I don't know if I want to say this. Say but it. I, I didn't care Go about off. the I didn't care about the SNL thing like at all. I think it's just like I don't know. I just don't care. I thought at worst it's cringe. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. At, at best, it it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just I like, oh, it's I so do weird. think it was shitty that Warren is not going to endorse Bernie Sanders. Uh, I do think that is bullshit. And like, if like claiming to cl- to want to uh, fight for big structural change, and then having an opportunity to you know actually make that happen. And, but being like mad because people sent you emojis or like be, because people were mean to you in a political campaign and just refuse. And then I did find it a little bit insulting uh, that like that's how she responded to that. But, you know, I don't think it's something that we need to, to lose our fucking minds over to the extent that people did. But like I said, uh, online is a reactionary space. And uh, that's just kind of what happens. Yeah. The replies to AOC's tweets, I was like scrolling through them. Like earlier today, because I think Aida link, yeah, Aida linked him in her column, but just like so fucking melodramatic. Like, yeah, are you, are you serious? Delete this. Like, are you We're gonna primary me? you with a real socialist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. It's like, what are you gonna do, dude? It's just so insane, and just like this, these fucking meltdowns are so spectacular. Now they're turning on Bernie because in their minds, like Bernie is not adequately pointing out Biden's cognitive decline. And I saw this, this <laughs> person who is trying to grow in the lefty YouTube space uh, in that whole sphere tweet out something earlier that just like killed me. It's like, did Bernie betray us? Is he a fraud? <laughs> and it's like, this dude was getting arrested before your parents were even fucking yeah. married, like for civil rights. Shut up, dude. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, I, yeah. I it's so, it's so annoying where you've got these like, the equivalent of just like, I don't know, just like a sophomore uh, in a philosophy class who just thinks that like Bernie not adhering to their worldview means he's a fraud. Like, shut up, dude. Yeah. No, but he's he's absolutely, of course he's not a fraud. Uh, I, I do wish that he would get a whole lot meaner. And I don't think he's really doing himself any favors by kind of treating Biden with kid gloves. Uh, he seems like he's been so concerned, even since 2016, of being the Nader figure and being the spoiler. Um, but the, like what we've seen since then is that he's going to be painted that way anyways. And, you know, I think when he's in this campaign, he should be he, trying to win at all costs. Uh, and I hope that I hope that he's able to do that kind of more forcefully when they do this this debate. But again, it's 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 there's a difference between pointing that out. I would like Bernie to go harder at this stuff. I would like him to stop being so nice um, <laughs> with being like he's a fraud. He betrayed us. You yeah, know, right. there is a middle ground. I'm kind of a centrist on this. I think. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's it's just it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre that like our biggest complaint or their biggest complaint is that Bernie isn't like mean enough the thing is like it's also a matter of optics right because he's already got these like these labels and stigmas attached and that he's curmudgeonly he's grumpy and you know to the broader electorate not like the reactionary twitter left like that that has a lot of people concerned I, i don't even know if it's a lot of people but you know people talk about his personality not being warm it came up in the nyt interview so that's one thing to consider another is and i think this also speaks to just bernie's heart it's that for him, at the end of the day, I don't necessarily know it's a, if it's a, ultimately about winning, if it's just about 
the common good and the overall greater good. And I think for him, it's a calculation like, look, I do not want to see Trump get a second term. And as he starts to realize, like, look, the odds are getting slimmer and slimmer. The last thing he wants to do is create an environment or have probably guilt associated with kneecapping Biden severely going into the general. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people consider that. I think they're they're looking at personal purity and who they will and will not go to the polls for. But I think for Bernie, it's he's got a lot at stake and he's got a lot of his actions impact this much to a much greater extent than the average voter in like Brooklyn who is going to sit out as a bold act of defiance. And I think he's weighing all of those options and he, he understands that the more negative he goes on Biden now, the easier it could be for Trump in November. I think Trump will find it quite easy to go negative regardless of what happens. Totally, totally. But I don't know. I just I think it's ultimately Bernie doesn't even want to feed into it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just because he, he's a good he's a good dude. I think that's it. Yeah. He's just like a really good person. And historically, attacking the front runner has not been like the move. It he should have gone way harder while he was the front runner. Now yeah. he's in this like uncomfortable position where yeah. he can't really do that. Bernie although although the don't attack nice the front runner rule uh, weirdly didn't apply when he was the front runner. No, right, right, right. Kind of right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Aida, do you have anything else uh, you wanted to get into? Um, anything nope. I have never with? I have never had a thought in my life. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Big mood. All right. Well, well do you just want to let everyone know where they can find your uh, your work and your your online presence. Um, well, I'm a reporter for The Intercept, so you can find my articles on there all the time. And you can also follow me on Twitter, where you can see my articles and my shit posts, two in one. <laughs> wow. What a deal. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for joining the show, Aid. It was a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>